You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. A few episodes back, I had a conversation with linguist and Bible translator Dr. Doug Trick, and during that interview, we ended up briefly talking about how his experience as a missionary led him to realize that people in non-Western cultures might have an easier time understanding some aspects of Scripture than people in the U.S. and Canada. You were saying that what people in East Asian countries might experience when it comes to shame is much more similar to what people in the biblical context experienced when it came to shame. But how are those similar to one another? And how are those two things different from what North American readers might experience when we think of shame? Well, one one key area is the idea of kind of individualism. So North Americans tend to be so highly individualistic that an experience of shame is largely, almost entirely, and in some cases it is entirely, attributed just simply to the one person who has done something shameful and doesn't necessarily connect to the extended family or even to say to the kin group or the clan group. Whereas in many societies, when somebody does something that is considered to be shameful, uh, they're not the only one who suffered the consequences. And they know that. They know that deeply. They know that they have not only committed an offense to an to somebody, an individual, but it might be that their whole clan has committed a grave offense to another whole clan. So the the magnitude of the offense is much different, and it can even go on from generation to generation. That observation from Dr. Trick tees up part of this week's episode pretty nicely. This week, I invited the chair of our advisory council, Ben O'Dell, to talk about one of his favorite books. The book is Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes, Patronage, Honor, and Shame in the Biblical World by E. Randolph Richards and Richard James. You'll be able to follow along in this episode just fine if you haven't read the book, but you might get more out of it if you have. We have a link to purchase the book on our website, christiancivics.org, if you want to pick up a copy and read it for yourself. Before we get to the conversation, though, give me a quick minute to summarize the general gist of the book for anyone who hasn't read it. The premise is that even though most of us know that modern Western individualism wasn't a perspective that the biblical authors were writing from, we still probably don't realize just how much it shapes our reading of Scripture, how much we project our modern culture or our contemporary ideas into the Bible's stories and instructions. An analogy we end up using a lot in the conversation is the old joke about two fish that swim up to each other on a nice day, and one fish asks, how's the water? And the other says, what's water? If I can carry that joke or that analogy forward a bit, this book tries to help us understand that there's actually a pretty big difference between the water we swim in in the U.S. today and the water the biblical authors swam in. It's maybe even bigger than the difference between two kinds of water. It's maybe more like the difference between water and the land. If we saw a model of an octopus, but we didn't know what the ocean was, 
and someone asked us how these animals move around and survive, we'd probably come up with an answer. We'd probably assume that it acted kind of like a spider or that it moved around like a bunch of snakes all tied together. We'd maybe even think that that answer was obvious, but we'd be wrong. We wouldn't really be able to get how an octopus moved unless we understood what the ocean was and how it worked. We'd need to know how light and heat moved through it and how it changes our relationship to gravity. Until we got that context, we'd never even suspect that the things that were so obvious to us might be wrong. The authors of this book make the argument that individualism is one of the biggest differences between our environment and the biblical environments, and that we've got to understand what that difference means And we have to keep that difference in mind if we want to actually understand scripture. The book focuses on some specific social systems that the authors say were just taken for granted in the biblical eras. Kinship, patronage, brokerage, honor, and shame. They say that the Bible doesn't explain these systems because it didn't have to. They were just facts of life for the biblical authors and for the biblical audiences. They were the water they were all swimming in. For each of these social systems, the authors explain the interpersonal, cultural, and political dynamics that it created for people in the biblical eras. And they give specific examples of how learning about these systems changes the way people from an individualist culture understand specific stories and directions in the Bible. We're going to jump right into my conversation with Ben as he starts talking about why this book was so exciting to him the first time he read it. Then we'll come back for a little extra reflection and prayer and some upcoming classes and next steps that we can all take together. One of the things I tell people often or talk to a lot of people about is how we lack a vocabulary for many of the challenges we face. Mm-hmm. I do believe the ideas in the book underline many of the new definitions that we need, many of the new words that we need, even the ways of thinking about what we need that could help us wrestle with what we are wrestling with in the world that doesn't work. And often I find modern individualism does not work in many contexts. I love in the book, too, how at least one of the authors has worked in in communities and cultures that have been more collectivist in general. And so there are not just historical examples, but present examples of how some of these social structures work in modern day. And so it takes a Bible story and walks it through a community that has a different point of view than the one I grew up with, the one I was taught out of, the one I presently participate in, and helps me better understand how some things would be seen, how some things are seen, understood, and read in those other contexts. And they see and hear things that I had never heard before and never seen in the text myself. It was one of the hardest things for me to really accept early on in my Christian faith. And it took me a while to really get my head around the fact that my perspective is not the perspective of the biblical authors and was not the perspective of the biblical audience. I even still often have this tension when I learn more about the biblical era history and learn more about the context in which each story was taking place or being told. 
and understand a way of interpreting the text that is different from what I would assume picking up the 1984 NIV or the NASB and reading it as a 21st century American. I know my original impulse of what this text is trying to say isn't necessarily counter to what it's trying to say, but is just not related. The drama that these words create in my mind is not actually the drama that the authors were trying to invoke Mm -hmm. or the conviction these words create in my mind. They use the example, I believe, at one point of modesty, how my knee-jerk reaction is always to assume that's talking about sexual modesty, even though it's dressed modestly, not with extravagant displays of wealth. But I am, Mm. but I still always have this impulse, no matter how much I learn and know my first reaction is always still, but but that's not what it says, even though I'm not actually seeing what it mm-hmm. says. I'm seeing English translation thousands of years later. Books like this help quiet that voice in me that wants, wants, wants my read on this text to be the definitive one. It's almost an exercise in humility for me, as much as it's exciting to get affirmed. Yeah, I know I'm missing something here, and yay, let's dive into trivia it's also mm. like reading this is an exercise in humility for me of, oh, that's not what the story of the rich man with two sons is actually about. Or that's not what was really going on on the mountain with Elisha. I think it's important to note here that it is not the fault of readers to bring their context to any text that they read. That is the nature of reading. That is the nature of study. But there's every once in a while, there's there's a book that I find, and again, this is kind of that newness idea as well, but there's a book that I find that, that talks to me about the water that I swim in mm-hmm. and helps me know what water is. I'm like, oh, this totally makes sense. This explains this the phenomenon that I've been experiencing my whole life, but didn't have words for, and kind of brings you just a little bit above your context. And you look down and you're like, oh, okay. I went to a pretentious, artsy-fartsy creative writing conservatory for college. And one of the big differences between literary fiction and genre fiction is the degree to which literary fiction buys into the show-don't-tell edict, whereas genre fiction is generally more comfortable just explaining a social structure or explaining someone's interior life instead of just picking a single revealing detail. And for people who aren't tuned into the culture that a piece of literary fiction is written in, it can seem really boring. But this book kind of explained the culture you need to understand the revealing details. Like, it never seemed like it was a significant detail to me of Jesus's arguing with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, the reactions of the crowds. I always kind of just thought that was there to show, like, see, people like Jesus. I didn't get that the crowd's reaction was a revealing detail about the power dynamic between them and even the political capital that was being exchanged as they argued back and forth. And I think this is uh, at least something people of faith and Christians need to wrestle with. There is culture at work on us. There was culture at work on Christ and, and Pharisees and Nicodemus and Paul and the people of the, the Old Testament. There, there were social forces at work, and there were social forces at work on the authors, and there were social forces at work on the readers, and there are just as many things happening to us today. And if we don't properly dig underneath some of those questions and ask some questions about the forces that are pushing on us, we become formed without asking what is forming us. We wrestle with who we're becoming without asking, is this what we're supposed to become? 
We're a podcast about faith and politics in the U.S. One of the things that kept coming to mind for me over and over again as I read this book about how being an individualist can cause you to misread scripture, but the individual is one of the major idolatries of American culture and American life, whether you're on the left or on the right. On the left, it's the cult of individuality and individual expression. On the right, it's the idolatry of individualism or self-sufficiency. And there's overlap between both of them. People on the right definitely want to make themselves heard and say what they have to say. And people on the left definitely want to be able to provide for themselves. But the bigger in vogue idols are individuality on the left, individualism on the right. But I think this book would call both of those things individualism, little i, individualism. Mm -hmm. And so I've struggled a lot since picking this book up with figuring out to what degree is my current practice of the faith a contextualized Christianity, which is good, or to what degree is my practice of the faith syncretism, an unhealthy marriage of some aspects of the gospel with some aspects of a pagan culture, not redeeming my individualism, but cheapening the gospel with it. I've already been able to talk a good game about how like, to live biblically, you have to like not conform to the American idolatry of the individual, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it's still, even in that, it, it's been, how do I, as an individual, pour myself out for other individuals in my church? Mm -hmm. Not how are we as a church functioning together mm -hmm. and not seeing the church as the organism. So I, I've been thinking about this in terms of neighbor mm -hmm. and how this book made me think about neighbor differently. Neighbor isn't just another individual. Neighbor is something in which we experience something collectively. And so love your neighbor is not this individual loving an individual it's us loving something together. There's something that we experience together, that we participate in together. And so I specifically thought about this when you talk about like voting in terms of the interest of your neighbor. It is not just the interest of some other individual. It is the interest of a collective in which I participate. I am a partner. I'm a part of that neighborhood. I am a part of that neighborliness and the, the values of neighborliness. I'm thinking of Walter Brueggemann and some of his more recent work on, on the value and the, the gospel of neighborliness. But I think within that, it helps me see that the questions that are here are bigger, more nuanced, more complicated, but that there is wisdom in, in the Bible to help us understand these. And maybe that wisdom wasn't on the word said, but the context of the words. And that when I better understand that context, I can bring that wisdom more clearly forward to wrestle with the degree to which culture has come into the church. Culture has come into our reading of the Bible. Culture has come into everything that we experience. You can't not bring culture. You bring culture everywhere with you. You bring the water that you swim in everywhere with you. There's there's no platonic Christianity. Jesus actually incarnated within a specific culture mm -hmm. at a specific time in a specific place. And that was not an accident. Mm -hmm. But to your point, we can't redeem culture. We can't renew culture. We can't redeem it until we understand it. We can't ask questions about it until we wrestle with it. Um, and so far, so many times in my walk and my faith, the truth has been in the wrestling rather than the finding. The truth has been in the tension. 
that I wrestle with between what it says in scripture and the culture of scripture and the tension of what I experience and read in my modern context. And then within that and the wrestling and the oh hard work of asking those questions, there is not just truth and not just knowledge, but wisdom to live by. That's hard with not even just being Western, being specifically American. Even in high school, you're often taught to scratch any use of I think from your essays or it seems, even though the etymology of the word essay is to try out. <laughs> it's The essay is at its root a speculative form of writing. We are trained to take what was a speculative medium and turn it definitive. Existing with uncertainty. I feel like Americans, I know I'm not good at. Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, the disciples weren't good at it either. The disciples are like, no, tell us what that story means. We just want to know exactly what you're saying. And he tells them another story. I mean, you know. But we, even, this, yeah. even the book points out, and again, it's one of those telling details that it was after the crowds left the disciples asked. And I always thought it was because they were embarrassed. Mm. But it turns out it's if the way they outline the honor contest culture is accurate, it's because they didn't want to seem like they were challenging him. They're waiting till the crowds leave, not because they're embarrassed or because it's secret, but because they don't want to seem like they're challenging him in front of people. And it's maybe also worth pointing out that some of the phrases we're throwing out, like honor contests, are generally, and the authors are pretty explicit about this, not words the biblical audience would have used to describe the systems that the authors are talking about, their terms, academics from the outside use to give themselves an entry point to understanding these things that are so common to insiders. Again, back like the fish, you ask a fish, how's the water? It says, what's water? Mm-hmm. And we need words for that. But I would say, as with books that are like this, it takes time for me to digest the different vocabulary and different words of thinking. Um, I'll use just a quick example, patronage. I think has so much within it. And there are so many ways in which patrons show up in scripture, whether or not it's how Paul relates to the church and and communicates his role within the church. Abraham's patronage of his family. I, I would say I'm still putting the pieces together. This book opened up possibilities to me and I'm, I can continue to wrestle with and think through these different things and then apply those ideas to how I think about politics, how I think about the church, how I think about the world and, and encourage others in it. But I feel like I've been empowered with some words in those spaces, in those conversations that I didn't have before reading this book. The section of the book that I'm still thinking about the most is the section on shame. It talks about how in biblical era cultures, shame was often a value neutral tool used by a group by a collective to pull someone back toward the group norms when they were potentially causing disharmony in the group or by their actions causing the group to be looked on less favorably by other groups or disadvantage it in the eyes of other groups or whatnot. They compared the way shame can be used constructively in biblical cultures to bring someone back into a community versus the way Western individualists are closest analog is probably guilt. And that's usually something that will push someone away until they can repair themselves and then come back. Whereas shame points out the flaw and says, you need to come back in so we can help you. 
I, I, I thought about someone who, who's been on the podcast before, Kurt Thompson, Dr. Kurt Thompson. He wrote a book called The Soul of Shame, and which has been very powerful for me personally and, and just really striking. And, and I think that helped me understand shame from an individualist perspective and how shame had worked on me and worked in me. And that was really important and helpful. The thing I think I draw from, from Dr. Thompson, he talks about how shame is disintegrating. Shame pulls the person apart. And how they, the authors of this book, talk about how deeply integrating shame is, how it deepens connection, how it enriches connection. Dr. Thompson's book talks about how, it, how shame works between individuals, but this book talks about the social structures of shame. Can shame be integrating? Now, the functions of brokerage and, and patronage in scripture give us some suggestions for that. It says, hey, you stand on behalf of someone, you represent them. While we don't have brokerage and, and patronage, we do have ways of representing other people and, and integrating our world with them. And saying, hey, you are part of us. You are part of who we are. And as a part of that we, I want you to know what it means to do that. And there are certain things that you've done that that don't look like we, that don't look like this community. And I want to bring you back. I want to integrate you back into the, to this community and to belonging. And again, we're back at these structures of asking, are there ways that socially, collectively, we can integrate people rather than causing them to experience disintegration. The way you talk about reintegration to a lot of people outside the church in the U.S., probably to a lot of people who are Christians in the U.S., sounds a lot like cult language. We don't have a framework as Americans for how one could possibly view themselves as part of a larger group of people that has authority to speak into them without that being unhealthy, without that being oppressive, without that being cultic, even in the church. I don't remember who I was talking to or what I was reading last year because everything's a blur and every day is the same and time has no meaning. (laughs) Um, But one of the things I heard or read someone say about a year ago that really stuck out to me is in scripture, there are lots of callings of individuals or lots of individual decisions for God. God calls individuals, but then answering God's call is always a step away from yourself and into another community. God will deal with you as an individual to bring you into the group. They say that in other words in this book as well, and they go back to the, you know, we tend to think of if Jesus is our shepherd, we're like the little lamb in his arms, but he's only going after the one lamb to bring it back to the flock. Mm. And even in church contexts in America, there's not a lot of models for how that works in a way that can be healthy. It's either you are an individual and it's a very free will autonomous tradition, or it's we come in as individuals and then they say, well, you have to supplant your individualness with the individualness of the leaders of the group. Not, it's a, it's, and I don't have a good phrase a good well, language yeah and again because we're missing a vocabulary let yeah. me let me let me you mentioned something that made me think of this which is that there are times when we feel like we're being told who we are and we're being forced upon it i would actually posit that we are always being pushed and 
changed by the world around us. And there are things we decide to bring in and decide to not bring in. But far more often than not, we are shaped more often than we know in ways that we don't acknowledge. I'm reminded of Gabe Lyons and David Kinnaman who talk about in one of their books that something like 70 of Christians believe they will find themselves by looking inside of themselves. And I call it faith-based navel-gazing. We're like (laughs) looking down and we're like, oh, I'm looking for me. I will find me here. Meanwhile, all the while we're looking down, these forces are pushing on us and shaping us. And we're engaging in media. We are engaging in books. We are engaging in watching We talked about narrative. We talked about story. We're watching stories, and those stories are shaping how I think about the world. And instead of looking up and acknowledging all the things that are pushing and shaping me, I'm assuming that I'm finding myself by looking inside of myself when all I'm doing is just accepting whatever's pushing on me without thinking about what's pushing on me. I think people of faith, I think Christians, have an opportunity to recognize the forces that are at work on their identity to shape and mold who they are. And as a result of being aware of that, as opposed to looking down, but looking up and out and saying, huh, what am I allowing to shape who I am? In the same way that this book talks about the ways that these social forces were at work on the people in scripture, I can be aware of these social forces at work on me and I can ask, who do I want to be? How do I want to be that? But unless I ask the question, unless I acknowledge the social forces at work on me, I can't redeem those things. I, but even more than redeem, I can actually know who I am becoming or who I am made to be without asking the question, who is making me? Not just in terms of the church, not just in terms of theology, but in terms of political points of view, in terms of ideology, in terms of these things, and say, what am I allowing to shape who I am? And you mentioned that those social forces end up shaping our attitudes about politics, government, civic life. Say a little more about that. I engage with so many Christians who don't recognize that there are forces at work beyond scripture and beyond the church that are shaping their political points of view more than the churches, more than their churches. And I believe in the work of Christian civics to help people and help congregations and help collectives of people, Christians, to better understand and wrestle with what it means for a church to inform those structures rather than having those structures inform the church. There's something I allude to or paraphrase a lot that I cribbed from you, which is that sometimes you can become a Christian and it turns out that the things that shaped your political commitments were more idolatrous than they were glorious and your politics changes. But just as often, and this is the part I crib from you a lot, there are times when you find out that the things that shaped your political commitments weren't idolatrous, they just were imperfect, and now they're being redeemed. And you're not called out of your political commitments, you're called deeper into them, and you're called to be a healing and transforming and missionary agent to people who share them. There's a quote from Richard Rohr that really was striking to me where he talks about the role of the prophet. And he says that the prophet has to participate enough in the system so that the prophet can be heard, but not so much that he is of it. I'm thinking of, I I, I reminded of Nathan. Nathan walks into the seat of power of David 
and uh, sorry if I'm quoting the the oh. podcast coming no, up. No, it's just it's um, he's Nathan and Jonah are the two um like case positive studies. and negative uh, examples uh, of how prophets handle denouncing things. So I'm just this is I'm more laughing because it's going to be good continuity for listeners. So sorry, Nathan has to know what would appeal to David. He has to have understood David's background and know that some of these metaphors that he's going to use are going to connect. It's going to reach David deeply. He has talked to David. Not only that, but he has to have authority in David's life. If he was separate from the system and out in the desert running around and came in with like wild hair and, and all kinds of stuff, he would not be received well. Instead, he comes into the system. He shares a story and the story changes the people who hear the story. And as a result, people start moving in the direction of redemption. I think you have to participate in the system in some form or fashion to have any effort toward redeeming the system. And you have to look like the system in some form or fashion to be received by the system. The kinship and boundary lines from the book. Great example, right? Like where it's talking about that, that you are part of a network. And again, you can't be part of that network and denounce that network and say, it's not me. No, you you are. And I think here too, they were part of kinship systems. We are part of systems. There are things that we participate. There are ways that we look. There are ways that we talk. Then we have to ask, where does my participation lead to opportunities to make this system just a little bit better, to recognize the imperfect and to introduce some element of better, of good, with a capital G. <laughs> through your participation in that opportunity, through your participation in those conversations, and by looking like that, you have more opportunities to have little tastes of the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And my hope would be that there would be more people of faith, more Christians who would seek out those opportunities to bring those little tastes of glory here on earth. All right. That was my book club conversation with Christian Civics Advisory Council Chair Ben O'Dell on the book Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes by E. Randolph Richards and Richard James. If you'd like to pick up a copy of the book, there's a link in the show notes and on our website, christiancivics.org. The water we swim in conditions us to fight about most topics. And most of the arguments playing out about government, about partisanship, even about the culture of the church or the rules of specific denominations, these all fall into the same kinds of patterns over and over again. They're either or, us, them, liberal or reactionary. And those patterns become a habit for us. Every time a new argument comes up, it's pretty easy to predict how we're going to react because our reaction was already conditioned by the way we talked about the last election and how we reacted to the last five stories about abuse of power in the church and what we yelled about at the last town hall meeting we went to. One of the reasons I think books like this one are so important for Christians in the U.S. is because they're asking questions that we're not already fighting about. They're arguing with us about topics we don't expect and from angles we're not used to. Bringing something in from left field like this, something that we might not already know how we're going to react to, gives us the chance to practice thinking, speaking, and acting 
differently. To practice listening without being defensive. To consider changing our minds about something or learning to think more critically or more self-critically without treating it like a fight, without that nagging bit of pride that tells us that if we say we might be wrong, then people we don't like are going to win or people we do like won't respect us anymore. We launched this ministry probably five years ago now, and we keep coming back to a few basic themes over and over again in our work. One of the biggest themes we keep coming back to is making an effort to not take your own culture, your own moral universe, your own presuppositions for granted. In our small group discussion guide, it's called Light to the World, Navigating Politics in Light of the Christian Story. And in that discussion guide, we talk about how knowing about the fall should make us humble enough to admit that we might be wrong when we're talking about politics with people. And that's great if every Christian reminded ourselves of that, and if we all made an effort to live that idea out, we'd probably be a much better influence on public debate. But that's just a first step. That's the bare minimum. If we really take the Bible's warnings about the fall seriously, we'll end up going much, much deeper than just admitting we might be wrong about the most effective way to help people out of poverty or how much schools should teach about slavery. We'll end up questioning why we were wrong, not just whether we were wrong. Really being humble and taking the Bible's warnings about the fall to heart should eventually lead us to start questioning the things that we take for granted, the assumptions that are foundational to the way we think and how we feel and how we view the world around us. And I'll be honest, whether we're on the left or on the right, I think this book is correct. Individualism is baked into how we view the world. And given that most Christians in the world today don't live in individualist cultures, and given that none of the biblical authors lived in an individualist culture, then we have to at least make an effort to not take that individualism for granted. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, giver of good gifts, kinsman redeemer, peacemaker, king of kings, merciful master, wise counselor, and loving friend. Scripture tells us that you stand outside of time. A day is like a thousand years to you, and a thousand years are like a day. You know all, you see all, and you sustain all people. You know the heart of every person. Your image is imprinted on every human, and that image is precious to you and worthy of honor from other image bearers. Thank you for putting us in a time and in a place where we can latch on so easily to those kinds of claims. They would have seemed audacious to people in other places and in other eras, but your word tells us they are true, and being in an individualist society makes it easier for us to believe them. It makes it easier for us to believe that you actually know and love and care about each of us individually. So thank you for that good gift. But living in an individualist society means that there are other things you tell us in your word that we don't even realize we miss. We get so caught up with how much you love us individually that we don't properly reckon with the fact that you did not intend for man to live 
think or feel alone. That you created us to need community. That to be Christian is not to just believe, but to believe and belong. And that that belonging is so, so central to how you want your word to go forth in this world. Even though your son said he is with us always, even to the end of the age, he also said that he is found in this world only in community, where two or more gather in his name. Thank you for the work that missionaries and thinkers and writers like Richards and James have done, giving us the chance to look at your word and our world with fresh eyes. Give us humble hearts before you, hearts that are willing to recognize the false ways within us and be led in the way of life everlasting. Let us reason together and give us minds to understand how to be in our corner of the world, our region, our neighborhood, our culture, our party, our family, our movement, but not of it. Through the correction and witness of other people in the church, from other regions, other neighborhoods, other cultures, other parties, other families, other movements. Show us how we misread our own culture, our own commitments, our own politics. We pray these things so that we may not conform to the patterns of the world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds, because we all need that renewal. Whatever side of the aisle we are on, we need it. And we pray these things in the name of the one who will bring the great renewal when he returns. Jesus, your Son and our Lord. Amen. Thank you all for praying with me. Before we close out, I have a few things to let you know about. One, if you think it's been worthwhile to listen to more than one or two episodes of this podcast— then you really should go to our website and sign up for the next Christian Civics Foundations cohort. It's a six-week discussion group covering the most fundamental ways Christians can think, speak, and act differently in the public square. We cover things like a biblical attitude toward democracy, finding common ground with people you don't trust, and the how and the why to building a politically diverse spiritual community. The next cohort launches in January, so if you want to make a New Year's resolution to be more involved or less polarized, this is a great way to give yourself a head start on that. I also want to let you know that we have some really exciting events coming up in the next few months. We're going to be bringing in guest teachers to talk about things like persuading people who disagree with you, understanding the difference between news and fake news, talking about race with your family members. If Christian Civics Foundations is our 101-level course, then these events are going to be more like 201-level seminars. To stay up to date on what's coming up, you should sign up for our mailing list at christiancivics.org newsletter. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Ben O'Dell for joining us and for the great book recommendation. Again, if you want to pick up a copy of the book we discussed, You can find a link to purchase it in the show notes or on our website, christiancivics.org. And while you're on our website, you can also find a link to the small group study that I mentioned, Light to the World, and a transcript of this episode. 
That's also it for this season of the podcast. I owe a huge thank you to our producer, Lauren Larson, for all of the hard work she's done this season and for the work she's already doing on the next season. We have some episodes in the works on morality, on economics, on political corruption. It's about to get really interesting. Season three of the podcast is going to start in December, so keep your subscription active and remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. That'll help the show reach more people. Thank you very much for being with us. I'm looking forward to being with you all again in December and in the Foundations cohort in January. But until then, I've been your host, Rick Barry, and on behalf of the Center for Christian Civics, I'm looking forward to being back with you soon to explore more ways that we can all think, speak, and act differently in the public square. Thank you.